0: Welcome everybody back to another episode of the pod. Micah, it has been a long, long while since we've had you on the pod for some NBA talk. Uh, welcome back.
1: Thank you. It's always nice to be back. I think it might have been midway through the playoffs of last year, the last time I was on this. And obviously a lot has happened since <laughs> then. It's a pretty crazy offseason and Giannis was able to get his title long awaited. But now that we're back, we have the NBA's 75 team and first impressions from across the league. Yes.
0: Yeah, so the last time we did a pod together was uh, in the middle. I remember it was uh, Mavericks-Clippers were in the middle of their series. John Brandt had that crazy 40-point game. We were worried about the Jazz for a bit. And ever since then, we've had all of the offseason. We had Giannis's a uh, crazy 50 point finals game. We had the Brooklyn series against Milwaukee. Um we didn't even talk about my team getting absolutely smoked. We we thank goodness we didn't have to have that conversation. Your team getting smoked in in a pretty bad series. Uh the NBA 75 teams out and as you alluded to it, a fantastic fantastic NBA season to start it is good to have the 82 game season back it's good to have this new revitalized league what has been the narrative that has been sticking out to you so far to start this 2021-2020 NBA season
1: so before this season I picked the defending champion Bucks to repeat as NBA champions but I was under the assumption that they would be also going through a healthy Brooklyn Nets team with or without Kyrie Irving but now it seems as though that Brooklyn Nets team won't even meet the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals if James Harden continues to play the way that he has. Just a couple of numbers to throw out here, Harden has not exceeded 20 points per game in this season. The last time that he went five straight games without recording more than 20 points in any of them was in the NBA Finals back in 2012. And the last time that he went 5 straight games without attempting five or more free throws in any of them was in 2011. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So right away, the off-season narrative of the new officiating rules, and there was real questions as to whether or not Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, obviously James Harden, Trey Young, Luka Doncic, some of these other, I guess, call-dependent players with a whistle – And we've already seen this rule play a serious role in the entire league. There's only 19 free throw attempts on average between the two teams. That is the lowest, I believe, in the last 30 years. That's a very
0: low number. That's a very low number, yeah.
1: That is, absolutely. And James Harden, among all-time great players, I would say he and probably Shaq, are the two most whistle-dependent, all-time great players we've ever seen. And this is already seriously taking a toll on the Brooklyn Nets because if we wanted to compare their formula for winning a championship to that of the Lakers two years ago when they had LeBron and AD, it's two mega superstars going out and getting you, between the two of them, 55 to 60 points per game, and being able to play make on and off the ball for their teammates. But now, if you look at this Brooklyn Nets roster, if Harden is no longer an MVP candidate and is borderline all-star as a serious, I guess, regression from where he once was, then that's a serious issue because you start looking ahead at some of those other teams in the East. We saw when they played Milwaukee on opening night, They are going to have a tough time being able to stand up to a bigger team. They still lack rim protection. I believe they're going to be bottom 10 defensively. And through these first five games, it looks like it's Durant against the world. If that is the case moving forward and Harden is not able to pick it up, and even if he doesn't return to superstar status, get to that borderline superstar status on the tier of could be like a CP3 or a Chris Middleton or a player of that caliber, then they are in serious trouble.
0: So you highlighted three excellent points there. Number one, Harden's struggle to start out of the gate has been very noteworthy because it leads to point two. The Nets are really relying a lot on Kevin Durant, and we saw last postseason that even with all the excitement, the efficiency, the big games, he, he was gassed by the end of that Bucks series. And the fear I have is that this is a 32 year old with an Achilles injury, with all these miles on him. They they need to push themselves now a bit more than I thought they would to get to that top spot. Because I think their goal, obviously, is get a top two seat at least, maybe top three, secure themselves way out in front of everybody else, and have a good run. And we've seen so far anything but. And number three, as much as I've been an anti Kyrie guy because of the va- stupid vaccination off off the court against all that stuff. The Nets really miss them. They miss having that creator when the game is out of hand. Because Brooklyn's big problem is defense, I think. They have a lot of big power forwards who can't really flex to the three or the five. They're kind of stuck playing Paul Millsap, L.A., LaMarcus Aldridge, Blake Griffin. They can play five, but if you're playing them at the five, like 20 minutes a game, I don't know where your team's going. And even then... It's a weird fit with that team. They're kind of lacking what they've already given up, which is Jeff Green. They're missing that wing that can kind of do it all and be a three, like a legit three-four stretch option. And I'm not saying Kyrie would have fixed that, because absolutely not, but there, there are some holes with this roster that I think we're kind of underrating here.
1: So, there definitely are. And if they have Durant and Harden, they're going to have a chance, but... Kevin Durant by himself is a brilliant efficient scorer but I would say that probably Steph Curry is the best offensive player overall in the entire game because I feel as though Durant is better as a play finisher with others being able to set him up. A couple of numbers jump out to me when it comes to having Harden on the floor versus off with Harden on the floor for the Nets be it with KD or without him also on the floor. They're a minus 42. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Plus nine with Harden off of the floor, be it with Durant or without. So moving forward, Steve Nash is going to have to have a couple of decisions to make. First off, who is their starting center? Because if it is Blake Griffin... Then they're not going to be able to guard
0: bigger players. Well, and 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 interrupt real quick. They've been playing Blake Griffin at the four recently and doing like Blake Griffin, Nick Claxton, Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge. But that's not Brooklyn style. Brooklyn last year was really good with having a five out offense give Katie and Harden space. And the issue, the cl- the cog in this machine is Bruce Brown, who's this six foot two guard who plays like a center. So now you have all these guys who are either too big or too small that play like bigs, but they're not really bigs anymore because of how old they are or how what their skill set may mean
1: yeah absolutely and to touch off of that point they do have a lot of different guys that they can seemingly plug into those four three and five roles alongside durant in the front court but aside from Really, Durant, they don't have any great defensive players. Bruce Brown is probably the closest thing that they have to a good defender.
0: And and Durant, and Durant is so busy offensively, he can't even really contribute much defensively.
1: Right. His main contribution defensively is going to be rim protection, and that's really their biggest weakness at this point on the team. So that brings me to my final point with the Brooklyn Nets, which is... Without Kyrie Irving, they go from best offense ever with him, Harden and Durant, in my opinion, and the numbers back that up, to borderline top 10 offense so far in the NBA. And if you have that formula along with what I do believe will be a top or excuse me, a bottom 10 defense, I don't feel as though that is enough to get over the hump and they are considered to be the odds on favorites right now at basically every sports book at about 2.30 to the dollar. So, with that being said, I wouldn't throw my money on them. I again am picking the Milwaukee Bucks to repeat as NBA champions, but something needs to change in Brooklyn in order for them to get to that level, and I don't think it is a personnel I excuse me. I don't think it's a coaching or a Chemistry problem. I think it's a personnel problem. So that's a much different issue.
0: Yeah, and, and the other issue, real quick, because I want to move on. They also don't have the resources to kind of fix all these problems. They don't have much a draft capital because of the Harden trade. Their pieces aren't really like you know intriguing to the rest of the league to make a package together to get some guy. So this is a team to watch out for. I'm more intrigued, the top four in the Eastern Conference. It, it is wild. It's the Knicks, the Hornets, the Wizards, and the Bulls at four and one each. If you had done like a Vegas parlay on what four teams would be top four in the East, none of those would be my picks. Out of those four, so out of New York, Charlotte, Washington, and Chicago, which is the team that stands out to you the most? Because for me, it's honestly Charlotte or Washington. X one starts on both those fronts.
1: Absolutely. Charlotte, obviously, with the number one offense in the league. The player that stands out to me the most is Miles Bridges. Yes, I,
0: I love Miles Bridges' game, stock. Yes. <laughs>
1: absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely no slander for Bridges will be allowed here. So, over the last four games, averaging 29 on 52% shooting, he wasn't my pick to win most improved player. My pick to win most improved player was actually Darius Garland this season. We'll see if that somehow plays out. But I do feel as though that he is head and shoulders above everyone else in that specific awards race thus far. And if you're able to pair a player like that, who is a count on it, 20 points per game, alongside LaMelo, who is also on track to make a huge leap in his second year in the league, this is not only a team that... Will catch your eye, and they're more of a league pass team where if you're not doing anything else, then you'll turn them on. This is actually a team that could make some damage because they're going to be able to score at will. They have enough shot creation to be able to attack any kind of defense. And the real question that it comes or that will come with them is again their center position they still lack any kind of a real rim runner or I guess shot creation big which in this league you don't necessarily have to have that tool but you at least need to have decent to above average rim protection on the defensive end because the Hornets are not any better on that end than they were last year.
0: Well, and real quick, uh, it kind of reminds me of the Phoenix Suns a bit where we overrate how important or underrate how important the center position is. We saw with the non-80 minutes how you can't play Frank Kaminsky and, you know, uh, I forget the rookie's name, but Smith, like you know, spot minutes. You have to have competent 48 minutes of big men. We saw it with the Knicks last year, as much as I hate New York, the Knicks did well last year, partly this year too, on having 48 minutes of Nerlens Noel and Mitchell Robinson and just quality veteran play at that center position. Oh, uh, we actually have breaking news here. Patrick Williams of the Bulls is out for the year. So big – I mean, we can move on to Chicago. Cause I, I I agree with you on the Hornets take. I love low-metal ball, potential – Early All-NBA candidate, honestly, for the third team spot. Easy all-star probably pick right now, even though we're five to six games in the season. But the Bulls, no Patrick Williams. Excellent start on their front, playing some pretty relatively easy teams here. They have a tough slate coming up. Uh, Did you think Chicago would gel this early with their new signings and their new team?
1: So, obviously, right out of the gate, they played the Pistons twice. I believe they had... The Pelicans and, and the, uh,
0: They are the Pelicans and the Raptors, I think.
1: Pelicans and Raptors. So, yeah, they started 4-0 and picked up their first loss of the league last night. But over these next three weeks, like you mentioned, they play nothing but teams that were either in the playoffs last year or were at least in the play-in. So we're going to really see them be tested. And I'm excited, too, because I did expect them to gel this soon. And to me, it honestly feels a lot like the Clippers from two years ago, the first year when they were thrown together with Kawhi PG, where you have a lot of different answers for different types of teams that can throw at them. But the one thing that I still have questions about is when you build an offense around Nikola Vucevic, you are going to have to bleed value on the other end when it comes to rim protection. And now with this Patrick Williams injury development, they lose probably the best defender in their starting lineup besides maybe Lonzo Ball. And that is a significant issue because that was really the question coming to this year, is we know Chicago is going to be improved offensively. They added a lot more shot creation they're going to be able to get out and run because all of those players like to attack early in the shot clock, but defensively, they now have more switchability. They are more athletic, but to me, they're still a relatively thin team when it comes to bench depth, as well as other ways to attack in the interior. So I remain a bit skeptical when it comes to putting them in that upper echelon of teams in the East right away but aside from Milwaukee, and I'm going to put an asterisk next to Brooklyn uh, around that second best team in the East, it could definitely be them by the end of the year.
0: Yeah, the 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 thing with this team that stood out to me, and ever since our last poll, we did off season talk. I stress this time and time again. There's a difference in debating teams between. What did they improve versus like how much did they give up to improve? Because I, that's a, a fine line. Like, I was never in agreement with the DeRozan contract. I thought the Lonzo Ball contract was justified, but a bit a little too much overpriced at the time. I thought they should have extended Levine. They didn't. I thought the Vooch trade was horrible, but they got better. We underrated, like, you can't play Chandler Hutchins in 30 minutes a night as your rotation player. And Chicago has caught... Even, like, Derek Jones Jr. off the bench as your ninth guy. He was good in Miami as, like, kind of that role. He's good now. And I think we underrated Chicago. Got better all around. They, they've, they've adopted a philosophy of it's Levine as the helm with all these role guys that can shoot. Lonzo Ball is the best fit with Zach Levine as a... Off-ball creator, secondary playmaker, defender from the point guard position. Vucevic is the spacing center that Levine never really had because Wendell Carter was never it. I don't think he'll be it. And Laurie Markkinen was never even going to be it, and they have that now. And DeRozan is just this veteran that teams always look for. And I've never been a DeRozan fan since Toronto, but he kind of fits that mold, and I didn't think it would fit. And they're proving me wrong, and they're proving you very right.
1: So... I remain skeptical, obviously. If I'm going to rank teams in terms of most likely to win the East or, better yet, most likely to upset Milwaukee in a seven-game series, I would actually supplant Brooklyn. And this probably segues into the next team that we talk about in the Eastern Conference, which is the Miami Heat.
0: Oh, you already know we're going to get some Heat talk in here. Let's do it. The Miami
1: Heat, to me, are everything as advertised. A perfectly gelling team with culture guys who are going to be able to unite behind jimmy butler who is a great leader and on paper as well as in reality they should be the number one defense in basketball they have as much switchability as you could possibly want bam out aside from maybe Giannis, is the most switchable player in the nba he led the league in switches and pick and roll uh, actions last year via second spectrum i don't see any reason why that won't continue and then with lineups of Lowry, Duncan Robinson who still hasn't even hit his stride when it comes to shooting. I expect that to change. We have all the reason to believe so. Obviously, Butler, Tucker and Adebayo. That lineup really answers any kind of defense that any team can throw at them in terms of being able to space the floor and being able to create and play inside out as well. Then defensively, they have rim protection. They have perimeter ball pressure. They also have the ability to take away and attack the corners on both ends of the floor. That is the P.J. Tucker luxury. And as much as people are going to give him flack for Durant <laughs> putting 50 on him. Torching him. him. you yeah. <laughs> On the J.J. Redick podcast and the old man in the three. He was doing everything that he could and he was going to make it so Durant is going to get his but Durant is not going to be able to play make for others because I'm going to be able to take him on an island and at least hold him slightly below his otherworldly efficiency that's exactly what you're getting in Miami is making great offenses play with a hand behind their back because they'll be able to take away the first look essentially that offenses try to throw at them and They're going to be able to contest and compete late in shot clocks. There's no reason why this is not going to be the best defense in the NBA behind probably the best defensive-minded head coach. And unless they really are going to have a different Tyler Hero than what we've seen so far, they're going to be loaded from top to bottom.
0: Yeah, what I like about this team, I personally underrated the PJ Tucker signing because he's he's the new Jay Crowder, not in terms of player type or mechanics, but he was a four that we always needed. Because this, I've alluded this time and time again with Miami, we've never had a good four before Jay Crowder and but b- after Chris Bosh, it was always like Udonis has him at thirty five years old. It was Myers Leonard, Jarnell Stokes, all like Josh McRoberts. It was all these random guys that just never never worked. And PJ Tucker now is the new Jay Crowder. He's this awesome, as you put it, defender that can even do things as little as like protect corners more on closeouts. I give like you. Know, I watched the Brooklyn game the other night, and Brooklyn was getting no corner threes. It was all gonna be like up the front between like the top of the key and the side by the the elbows. That was it. They were not getting any shots in the corners. No open jumpers from any of that location. And you said it best. Where this team has the most upside defensively in the whole league, and the most playoff potential in the league. Because I think regular season-wise, they're probably worse. I think they're more like a 4-seed, 5-seed, more of like a 4-seed, 5-seed in the league than they are like a 2-3. But playoff-wise, if Brooklyn struggles like this continuously, you can argue Miami might be the second-best team behind Milwaukee just on upside in the postseason. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I have the same stance when it comes to Miami obviously you're not gonna have coaching questions unlike you will with Brooklyn. Nash is still trying to figure out what their rotation is and that will probably take the entire year unless Kyrie Irving subdues to pressure and government mandate and actually gets vaccinated because if they're only gonna have Durant and Harden as their primary creators, then that's a lot to handle between two superstars. To me, Brooklyn though, Durant should see this season as a real opportunity. This is the first time since he was in OKC where he is legitimately
0: not on a super team. And he's the undisputed best player. Like, there's no Curry, there's no... Even Harden had some MVP talk last year. Now there's a full-blown, like, hierarchy.
1: Absolutely. So, I guess this is a good time to segue into our Western Conference talk.
0: Yes, we've got got like 20 minutes on that because I want to save some time for the NBA 75th. Jazz at 4-0. and uh, No surprise there. Um, what's been the standout to you? Because they got some guys. Uh, you know, Rudy Gay's in the, uh, the full not playing yet. You got Hassan Whiteside. You lost Eric Favors. You're bringing the same team back. What stood out to you from that Clippers series? Because we didn't really talk about this. We kind of missed the mark because of uh, the timeline. But your your team gets probably uh, exits the playoffs a bit earlier than I thought, personally. And here they are, revitalized, hopefully, to make a good regular season and playoff push this year what's been your utah take so far so
1: so far this season they are for the first time in franchise history the last remaining undefeated team in the league but if we want to backtrack to the playoffs last year it was glaringly obvious that the jazz had holes that were really not really addressed throughout the regular season and it was the main reason why i wanted pj tucker at the trade deadline is the Jazz don't have a way to combat teams when they go small and try to scheme Gobert off the floor by playing five out and attacking the corners. So now the Jazz have addressed that issue, bringing in Rudy Gay, Eric Pascal, as basically a swap for George Niang, who is now in Philly. So we are subtracting a tiny bit of our offensive juice in order to... Adds switchability, as well as closeout potential. And so far this season, the Jazz have been the number two or three defense. We have allowed the number two shot quality rating. So, again, we are ranking number one in terms of opponent three-point shooting percentage allowed, and I expect that to continue. The one thing that I will say jumps out to me so far this season, besides the fact that Mitchell and Conley still are not playing to their true potential, and we are winning each game by an average of 19. Is Hassan Whiteside looks like his Portland? Star. I
0: know he's back. He was gone for a couple days, a couple of years. <laughs> he
1: was gone for a couple of years, but there's something that you really can't take away from him, and that is the ability to move his feet when he actually is motivated and be able to close off. Shots at the rim. The Jazz this season are number two in terms of allowing field goal percentage at the rim. They are roughly 15% above league average in terms of allowing shots at the rim. So other teams are shooting 45% instead of 60% in the restricted area. So when you rank the most efficient shots in basketball, it goes free throw, restricted area, corner three, top of the key three. Right now, other teams are significantly below those marks in terms of corner threes and restricted area, yeah. and with the significant dip in terms of teams getting the free throw line and making their money there, the Jazz are legitimately better this season on the defensive end, even when they were last year. And I could again see this team with the best record in the league. Absolutely. And a top three to five rating on both ends of the floor.
0: Well, you addressed two key points. Number one, their biggest weakness was a lack of a true wing defender who can guard Kawhi, who can guard LeBron, who can guard even Anthony Davis at times. I think Gobert is operating better as a rim protector and a secondary helper, not the primary guy. Because we saw it with the Clippers that even without Kawhi, they were just running a scheme of we're going to run, pick, and roll, and then have Gobert guard perimeter guys. Have him guard Terrence Mann, have him guard Batum, Marcus Morris, all these individuals. And you now that you bring in Eric Pasco and Rudy Gay, the scheme is at least there to have guys who can maybe cover Because Rudy Gay on the Spurs covered LeBron and covered, guarded Kawhi and Paul George. And I think part of it was, like, ill-advised fate. Like, when you guys had to play, like, James Harden years ago, you didn't really have a guy to guard James Harden. When you had the Warriors, ain't nobody was guarding Steph Curry on that team. Last year, even with, like, no Kawhi, there was nobody on that roster outside of Roy Sonia who can guard Wing players, and even then, Royce is better guarding like a James Harden or a Kyrie, not a Kevin Durant or a LeBron. Now you guys at least have in theory that, and Hassan Whiteside, underratedly a minutes eater when Gobert's in foul trouble, or just a foul eater. So that way, when Gobert's in foul trouble, just throw Whiteside in there or play Rudy Gay at the five. That scheme versatility, and you're running back the same seven guys again that all know each other very well. The Western Conference is, is. excuse the language, a shit show with the Lakers struggling, the Warriors, they could easily flip a switch and go back to normal. Dallas, I'm confused on still. Nuggets are missing now. Jokic and Murray, that's going to be interesting. The Jazz have the most consistency, the most competency out of any Western Conference team right now, and they probably will have it for the rest of the year.
1: So the continuity aspect is something that is right that you touched on. They're throwing together the same roster with a couple of key switches when it comes to bench rotation. But as we look at the landscape of the Western Conference, I am still a firm believer that having other teams have to win a Game 7 on our home floor is something that we really want. We want to have teams come to elevation and have to play in front of our home fans as much as they sometimes might be, <laughs> say, a bunch of other controversial things, but I am still a firm believer in terms of home court advantage, as we saw last year, even. Milwaukee was able to close it out on their home floor.
0: It was huge. Yeah. They if that was in Brooklyn, they would have lost by 20. Easily. I mean,
1: yeah, and they were able to win Game 7 in Brooklyn just by, I guess, the luck of Durant having slightly bigger feet than he otherwise could have. <laughs> but, yes, as we look ahead to some of the other teams in the Western Conference, I would say the one that I would like to have a more of a lengthy discussion about is Dallas.
0: Oh yeah. I, I am on the Luca hype train right now. Give me your Dallas oh. take right now. Cause we didn't even talk about Jason Kidd. The no Kyle Lowry for them. No Giannis. They got uh, Reggie Bullock and Sterling Brown to be the new. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> so what's so your I Dallas takes? Like
1: Sterling Brown. Okay. Two more guys that can finish plays if they are set up and they're able to scheme wide open shots. That is a problem considering as great as Luka is, I feel as though they're going to come into that same issue that we had in the Harden Rockets years where it's one guy dribbling the ball all the time, it's high pick and roll, and you don't have anybody else that can rely on to go get you 20 points a game and be able to run the offense when he's not out there. Jalen Brunson is a great sixth-man candidate to have to start second quarters, but I will say I really wanted to see this team do something in the offseason, and throwing together the same roster for them is different than it is with Utah, because Kristaps is not reliable, and seemingly... And he's
0: he's no Rudy Gobert either, so...
1: He's no Gobert defensively, and playing him and Dwight Powell on the court at the same time is something that is also a chemistry experiment, much like the Lakers, where it will take time to develop, but I'm not sure that it really has a significant ceiling, because in a way, both players can cancel each other out. I don't feel as though either of them are great defenders outside of the paint, and while Kristaps is about an average rim protector to slightly above average, Dwight Powell somewhat lacks mobility and that was kind of on display to start this season granted if Luka is going to be MVP Luca as we've seen in the past two post seasons they should be able to mask some of these flaws but I don't see any real reason why this team is any better than they were last year and last year they were really good but not good enough.
0: My my take on Dallas, excellent analogy. You're alluding to the post Dwight Howard but pre Chris Paul Rockets. That twenty seventeen year where they won sixty five games, everyone's hyping them up. Or no, they won fifty like seven games or fifty nine games. Harden had a great year that year. But and that was the Westbrook MVP year. That's when Harden got runner up. But that was the year they faced the Spurs and got blown out on their home court, game six, no Kawhi Leonard playing that game, because at some point it was all right, Eric Gordon, uh, Harden's getting triple team. Go score a basket. Oh, Ryan Anderson, can you make some shots? This team gives me that vibe where it's, like, outside of Luka. Tim Hardaway, good luck. He drops in 20. Jalen Brunson. Uh, Tim
1: Hardaway, it's Dorian Finney smith Trey, it's Trey Burke.
0: It's, like, these guys, I'm like, yes, they're good as, like, seventh men, sixth men, fifth men, but not as your second ball handler creator. Like, absolutely not. Like, the other night, the Mavericks – played the Rockets, and Reggie Ball hit, like, seven threes. If he he barely hits, like, three in a game, so on the night where he hits two, what do you do? Like, you're really banking on some hot shooting luck. And my other problem with Dallas is that I do think there's an upside to them because they got unlucky with the matchup. Like, the Clippers were the kryptonite easily. Out of any Western conference team they could have played, the Clippers are the worst matchup. They don't have wing defenders. They have all the guys to throw at Luka and force other guys to shoot they have much better time easily with the other teams, especially with a a team like Denver, a team like Portland, a team like even Phoenix or L.A. But on the other hand, though, there is a concern that without having that second guy and if Porzingis is just not going to be that guy at all, which I don't think he is because we've said it for the last half decade, it's not happening, who steps up to kind of take that place because Dallas does not have the assets and I'm still not the biggest Jason Kidd believer out there.
1: So I am also not... A believer of jason kidd i feel as though he's going to take what was already a decent offense but really an offense that's centered around one player playing the best basketball in the world and luca is capable of that before the season i actually ranked him as the fifth best player in the world one spot ahead of jokic who's the reigning mvp so with that being said Doncic is capable of doing these things but in terms of routes to winning playoff games, they really only have one, and it's he is the best player on the floor doing it
0: all. Yeah, and, and the thing with Dallas that intrigues me the most is that they have the most upside-downside, I think, in the Western Conference. They can easily be a playing team if like the other Western Conference teams are better. They also might just be the second-best team in the West if Golden State falls off a cliff, if the Clippers' Suns group doesn't really age well, if the Lakers kind of coast this year— Dallas might just be a default second seed. And the analogy I've seen a lot online has been LeBron 2007, where LeBron just by himself was good enough to take that Cleveland team. Dallas by itself with Luka might be good enough to be a second seed by, like, in its own right. There is that possibility. Dallas having that upside or that downside, that is a team to watch out for, for sure.
1: Absolutely. So I guess moving on to the last team that is something that I always like to talk about in the West which is
0: Portland. Oh, yeah. We we missed out on the Dame talk, the the, the trade scenarios. What is your uh, Portland take for this year so far?
1: So I'm glad to see that Dame actually is committed to Portland, at least for this year. I feel as though I've said the same thing each of the last three years. I'm glad he's back to run it (laughs) back again. But at some point, the roster is broken even though you have on paper what should be a good enough team to compete in the West, CJ is off to a red-hot start. He's making four threes a game. I don't know if that continues, but I do believe that... Portland doesn't have a good enough bench.
0: So, can, can I, here, here's, here's, the, here's what you're going to say to keep it up front. If Cody Zeller is your best offseason signing, you're fucked, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. If Cody Zeller is your best offseason sure. signing, That's you're, a great you're screwed, is what I'm trying to hear. <laughs> yeah,
1: you are screwed. And I guess, aside from that, it was a really short but brief analysis on that front, is I got to sound off on the Lakers before we jump into some NBA 75 I got three issues with them. They're yes. the same three issues that I had before the season, and the age is already starting to show. Oh yeah, they're a, bad, they're a bad defense, and with Harden or excuse me, with Russell Westbrook and LeBron on the floor, unlike Harden and Irving from last year, there is a clear point guard just like those two. But Frank Vogel and the offense are already having it wrong. It is LeBron bringing the ball up the floor. It is Russell Westbrook playing that off-ball, back-slashing, and, I guess, secondary initiating and and pick-and-roll guard, much like D-Wade in Miami when they had the Heatles. That is Russell Westbrook's role in this team, and he can be very valuable in that role. But unless he's going to slightly change his ways, they are going to continue being a bad defensive team. They are a team that relies heavily on LeBron being the best shooter. And if that is the case... That's not...
0: That's PTSD from... That's PTSD from 2019 where they said, give LeBron playmakers. No.
1: (laughs) No. You give LeBron shooters. And in this case, you have Russell Westbrook. So, if you're going to try to run 360, like their big three is now referred to as, it's LeBron bringing the ball to the floor. It's Russ... Like I said, cutting off the ball, setting a high ball screen, diving to the rim, and being able to get AD looks near the rim. But if that's not the case, then you have to at some point realize that we're still a bad defensive team, so we're going to have to try to outscore teams. Then Russ would actually have to, I guess, play the first six minutes of the game, so he oh. realized that he's still a starter on this team. <laughs> but he's going to have to really be the sixth man.
0: No, I, it's not even a crazy take. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. I agree with you because I've said this on the pod. We've made this stance for two months. I think the the uh, the Lakers should have just taken the Kings trade, get Buddy healed. You're better off with Buddy Heald and nothing else and keeping KCP than doing the... Like, the Wizards might have... Their general manager might win best GM of the year for getting off the Westbrook contract and getting all those pieces back. They got a first-round pick and three quality rotation plays for Westbrook. The Wizards are 4-1, and one, are doing better without Westbrook right now than with Westbrook. And I get it. Like, it's a different team, whatever. But, dude, like, Westbrook is acting like an alpha when he's a, when he's a, a C at best, like a C option. And... You, you you said it right. This team is already injured. Ariza is has ankle surgery, uh Malik Monk's groin isn't working, uh A D and LeBron are already banged up and it's been five games. This team has real weaknesses, and if LeBron, is even, if LeBron cannot keep up 40% shooting from three every night, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And if Westbrook does not revert to the Houston Rockets-Westbrook he's off-ball cutter, no three-pointers allowed shooting-wise from him, no long twos, shoot 60% from the field, this team is going to suck. And the Western Conference, if we've seen time and time again, you cannot screw this up. Because the moment you do, you go from being a 2 to out of the playoffs, especially in the West.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and injuries are much of the reason why they were the seven seed last year, and as we've seen, it's a much different route to go through Utah, Denver, Phoenix in in the first round, and then you get, this year, you probably have to go through three out of the five teams, you gotta go through Utah, Phoenix, Denver, Phoenix, assuming that they pick it up, Denver, Golden State, Dallas, and... I guess the Clippers, you might even get them in the play-in. Who knows? And we can't even count out Memphis, who's been on fire to start. You're going to have to beat three of those teams in back-to-back-to-back playoff series. That's unlike anything that you really want. And all of those teams are going to be better than the Lakers defensively, unless there is an unforeseen change. And I think that the answer is staring Frank Vogel right in the face. I don't know if it's something that he will pick up on, but for now, you have Russell Westbrook, and that means that you're going to be able to take more nights off if LeBron or AD have any kind of an ailment. We've seen that already this season. But at some point, the injuries may be too much to overcome. But as just a basketball fan, watching this team is going to be, I guess, Also a fan of science as well. It's a chemistry experiment on a basketball
0: court. Yeah, this is a team to watch out for, for sure. Before we do NBA 75, we have not even talked about this because it never happened, but let's get into some Ben Simmons conversation here. Just a quick question. Ever since we did our last pod, the Sixers have a horrible Game 7. They blow that entire series out of proportion against Atlanta. The Ben Simmons shoots three shots in the fourth quarter of all the games combined, one through seven. There's everything with the James Harden crap, where we find out that they should have done the James Harden trade, and they pulled out last minute, and Ben Simmons knew about the trade, and it didn't happen. And it was in his head. The free throw stuff with uh, him shooting 30% from the foul line, the worst ever, even beating Shaq out for worst percentage in the playoffs for a series. The the pass on the dunk to Matisse Thibel instead of just laying the ball in, that whole thing. All the offseason stuff with like he wants to hold out, now he's back, now he's not committed, he has now a mental health problem that they've cited as like an excuse, which justified or unjustified is still what's happening right now. What the hell do you make of this situation? Because you've honestly, I've never heard your opinion on this, I just want to get your thoughts on all of this, because it's been a crazy saga that honestly has no end in sight.
1: So the answer for the Philadelphia 76ers on this is sitting down at a whiteboard and ranking the 100 best players in the NBA and realizing that Simmons is borderline top 40 or so, and then realizing that any player in that tier just below it, you're going to have to shed his salary. You're going to have to tell him, best of luck. We are going to try to trade you for any of these players that are slightly worse than you because outside of him it is a broken offense it is Embiid being doubled much of the same way as it was against boston in the playoffs in the bubble and as much as tyrese maxi and furcon cork Need
0: this team is bad can we talk about how like this team is really bad role player wise it's maxi like danny is danny green their second best player if tobias harris is having an off night is it really might be him like what the hell
1: it's probably Niang off the bench, at least for now. Oh, I mean, God. Yeah, Seth Curry, maybe. So they still have shooting, but they need a point guard badly. So I guess if you are the 76ers, do you give the Pacers a call and say, you know what, Karis Lavert we want you, or Malcolm Brogdon or any of those other players, even – the, the trade that makes the most sense for me, honestly, is calling up Sacramento and telling them, hey, you're going to get a lot better defensively. You already have Davion Mitchell and Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah. We can either get both of those guys for Simmons or we're just going to do a straight-up Simmons for De'Aaron Fox swap and call it even.
0: Yeah, and the other thing with Ben Simmons, it's, it's both. In reality, Philly effed up first with the James Harden stuff coming out. Then Ben Simmons made it way worse when... The, even there's a conspiracy theory out there because i can't factually prove that with game seven of the hawks series where ben simmons almost didn't make the game because of a positive case with the masseuse or something but there's rumors that he made it up so that he couldn't play in game seven because he was so in his head with that whole pressure of like they had to win that game if you're philly you need to get rid of ben simmons now before later and if you're Ben Simmons, you are you need to go out there and prove everyone wrong. Stop with this offseason shenanigans. Get back on the court. Stop looking like an ass in practice, and rebuild your value because you're not getting out of Philly otherwise, because Philly won't trade you. He
1: can also rebuild his value very easily because yes. the moment that he steps on the court, Philly is a much better team.
0: And Embiid's going ga- to miss games. Embiid's going to miss games because it's Embiid. There's going to be moments where this team is going to have no Embiid or Simmons.
1: Correct. So he goes back on the floor. Let's say that he plays one week worth of games. It's like when Harden was trying to get his way out of Houston. He sacks up. He goes and plays. He plays some of the best basketball, at least offensively speaking, in the entire league. People realize, oh, yeah, this is the guy that we want to trade for. So now Simmons needs to remind people that, hey, what happened in the playoffs last year, that really is who I am as a player but at least I'm going to give you this hellacious defense and you're going to get all of the hustle plays from me as well as being able to be one of the better in transition players in the league. So then teams that are trying to become faster and get out of some of their slower 24 second shot clock sets in the half court, they will at least be more tempted to throw something in there. So I guess if you're Indiana or Sacramento that are both teams teetering on the level of mediocrity to out-of-the-playoffs, purgatory in the NBA. Then they'll see a player that is probably slightly better than anything they have at this point, and they'll probably throw it in and say, you know what, Levert for Simmons or Fox for Simmons.
0: So we got one last topic here. NBA releases their 75th anniversary team, and there was a lot of debate, as there would be, over who made it and who didn't. I think for this episode, because I'm going to have an episode really dedicated to breaking down the team, but for this episode, let's focus on the snubs of those who didn't get in. The big one was probably Dwight Howard. I think there was a lot of, like, Dwight Howard, this, he should have made it, blah, blah, blah. Number one, do you think he should have been on the All-NBA 75th team? Number two, what was the big reason you think that he wasn't put on it in the first place?
1: So, yes, I believe that Dwight Howard is one of the 75 best players ever. He's an eight-time All-NBA guy. He won the Defensive Player of the Year three times. He's finished as a top-five MVP candidate four times. When the Magic made the finals in 2010, nobody expected that would happen.
0: Yeah, it was that 0-9 team. They beat LeBron and they beat 0-9. They beat the Celtics and the Cavs that year.
1: That's correct. So nobody expected that. They were far and away the inferior team against L.A., and he was far and away the best player on that team. Prime Dwight Howard for an eight-year or at least a six-year stretch, sans one of those years that he was slightly injured. That was one of the best players we've ever seen. And to say that of the 75 players on there, you can't take off one of them that played in the 50s and or 60s to be able to make room for them. I mean, I can name the players right now that obviously should still be there and played in that era. Okay, from the fifties, you're going to have to have George Mikan and Bob Pettit. Outside of those two, there's really nobody else that certainly needs to be. Yeah, on Yeah,
0: maybe list. like Bill Sharman for like the late fifties or early sixties, but okay. that's a stretch. Like,
1: yeah, okay. So then going to the sixties, you're going to have Gary West, Oscar Robertson, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Hal Greer. I also agree Hal should Greer. still be on that list. But aside from those guys, Dolph Shays,
0: obviously a Syracuse
1: guy. Should Dolph Shays really be on there over Dwight Howard? Dolph Shays is a guy who is considered a sharpshooter and never shot above 38%.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and like long twos with like a push shot. I think what you're getting at here, the problem with this all NBA this uh, NBA anniversary team is that I have my own ranking as well, like a top hundred list. And the challenge is that how do you how is it fair to compare players from an earlier era into now? Because the players now are the evolved version of before. The analogy that a lot of people use is like Bob Cousy is the was the modern day point guard of his time. Damian Lillard is better than Bob Cousy. Without a doubt. But Bob Cousy was more of a magnifying player and more of a historically important player than Damian Lillard would ever be. How do you quantify that on paper? Because by stats, by resume, Damian Lillard is probably better than, and Russell Westbrook even. Like, Westbrook has a better resume than Bob Cousy ever would. But Bob Cousy is better than Westbrook, I think, personally, because of the impact he had on the game. Because he said, we wouldn't have a fast break or a run and gun offense if Bob Cousy wasn't alive. Like, Westbrook and Definitely Damian Little couldn't do this shit without Bob Cousy.
1: The first real run-and-gun offense we would have had would have been the 70s Nuggets with Alex English and Dan Issel. And for a brief time, you're going to have, like, George McGinnis also on that team. That would have been the first time that we would have had one if it had not been for the 60s Celtics. Even the 72 Lakers, who had, on paper, probably the best big three ever in terms of just ranking all-time greats as to where... They probably are in terms of the 100 greatest players of all time. That team was a bit slow when it came to pace and ability to score points per possession. So yes, to that point, Dwight Howard, number one omission, number two, Anthony Davis. That
0: Anthony that's Davis. a tough one for me, but I have in my top 75. What happened last year with the postseason, or two years ago with the postseason, was awesome and like that by itself made him good the underrated one bernard king not making it. he was like a top it's a tough call but he was a top five player in the 80s he took on bird celtics to game set with nobody he should have made it over like damian lillard like i'm sorry what has damian lillard done in 10 years that bernard bernard had a higher upside higher postseason success but that's the problem though with this debate and i think the other issue that we're kind of leaning toward here it's we have a a bias toward modern guys because we're watching the modern players play right now. We're seeing, like, guys... The the players we're seeing now are the ones that people are talking about time and time again. We weren't alive in the 80s to watch Bernard King or Alex English. We weren't alive to see Mutombo or Grand Hill or even, like, T-Mac around even then. And those guys were all omitted from the team. Whereas these modern guys we're seeing every day, we have social media... Other than like these repeat clips of you know T Max thirteen points in thirty seconds or whatever or Mutombo with the eight the eight seed over the one seed, we really aren't exposed to those sorts of guys. I don't think people know that Alex English had the most points in the eighties over Larry Bird over Kareem, and nobody would know that. Everyone would say it was Bird or Kareem, but it was Alex English, and that that difference in generation makes this even more complicated.
1: Yeah, they would say those two, or they might even throw Dominique Wilkins' hat into the ring. Yeah. But... I think the one player that doesn't get enough credit here and is also a glaring omission to me is Tony
0: Parker. See, he, that one. That one's a tough one for me. Tony Parker's a hard sell. For, in turn, my problem is I think he was by himself not good, but he had a very good system around him. The flip side, though, is that he was an All-NBA guy multiple years and was a Finals MVP. So, I mean, you could play that card, too. time
1: All-NBA, he was a Finals MVP. The thing that I just can't get away from, and it's it might be something that... In terms of just a winning bias, and that might also be a product of the system that you play in, but I don't understand how a team wins 50 games for 20 straight seasons, and they win five NBA championships, think about it. No
0: other. They were the best. No, they are the best dynasty. I would argue they're better than the Russell dynasty in terms of just longevity. In terms of yep. success, it's Russell's teams, of course. But in terms of, they were a contender for twenty straight years. At some point, all
1: of the other dynasties in NBA history Flamed- have at least two players on that seventy-five list,
0: and they have just one. They have just Duncan. Yep,
1: and and that would also be, I guess a point to try and prove that Duncan is in the GOAT conversation.
0: Oh yeah, I've got him like 7th all-time for me, yeah.
1: Another guy that's one of the 75 greatest ever that you won 5 championships with. That's That really means a lot because Kawhi is the only other player that's on that list. Ginobili doesn't deserve to be in the 75 greatest, in my opinion, but he was also an integral part of those teams.
0: Yeah, and the other part that I've noticed when I made my list, for instance, for top 100, after, like, player 65, you're really basing it off, like, subjectivity a lot because it's what do you prioritize? Like, there's some players in the bottom 65 to 100 of my list who had, like... Long careers, but never really had a standout MVP year. Or likewise, they're like uh, Earl Monroe, where he had like one really good year, made the All NBA first team, and then was like a secondary guy behind uh, Frazier and uh, and what's his name and Nate, uh, not Nate Thurmond. Uh, Little, tiny and a uh, uh, Willie, sorry, Willis Reed with New York, oh, like, true, yeah. like there's that resume. There's the Vince Carter resume where it's like great offensive stats, but sucked in the playoffs every year of his career. There's T Mac, Ditto. There's like Artis Gilmore where it's like he played for forever but did nothing noticeable. Or like even you can use him as like the. How do you judge the guy who played half his career in the A- ABA and then made it to the NBA? Like, that whole debate. Oh uh,
1: yeah, Dr. J and Rick Barry, both of them were able to dominate in yeah. Their color shining through, obviously. Yeah,
0: and that leads me to Klay Thompson, the last big guy here where, how do you quantify his game? Because you can argue that he had multiple defining games that gave the Warriors an extra finals berth here, an extra title game here, but and the other problem is that he's stuck with the context where he was never he could never be the best player in his own team. It was always behind Curry and Durant and then just Curry. If he had his own team, would he even be good? Would he even be in the conversation or likewise could he have elevated his game to more of like an on-ball creator? Like you play the what if game and then there's some players where like Reggie Miller is the perfect example. On on paper, horrible resume. It's only like three All NBA teams, like twenty points per game. But then he had a, his Pacers teams were some of the best ever to yeah. never win a title or make the finals. That all those debates, like this they is.
1: Made the finals. Yeah, and they
0: made the finals of yeah. entry one year. So all yeah. these debates, and we're still missing on stuff. And it, it kind of shows the complexity of this All NBA kind of like debate for best ever.
1: Yeah, so it's one of the reasons why a lot of people who evaluate basketball these days, they don't even take accomplishments into I guess their ranking of players. All they look at is talent and application. Yeah. How good are you on paper and how good are you on the court and how good you are on paper? How many different quantifiable basketball qualities are you a shot creator? Are you a rim protector? It, it,
0: it's the it's the Westbrook corollary for me. It's the idea that like you put up great numbers on paper, therefore you're one of the best. Like people saying Westbrook is the top five point guard, God no. Even top ten, it's very like sketchy because of like whatever. You're gonna uh,
1: kick out Bob Cousy, Gary Payton. Does,
0: Jason Kidd? Does Jason he
1: Kidd not make the list? Yeah,
0: come on. So. Yeah, a lot of debate here, but we'll have a special episode where we'll do our own draft down the road in about 10 or so episodes, but uh great episode as always. Thank you for joining the pod. And once again, welcome back.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.